Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day with our free daily email newsletter, chock full of fascinating stories, or with our smartphone app, or of course, straight from our website at SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in Manhattan today, up in Harlem at my little brother's place. Joining me from across the East River at SupChina headquarters in Brooklyn is Jeremy Goldhorn, also known as Jin Yumi. And I hope that today you'll all stop to reflect on the fact that Jin Yumi is easily the best Chinese name that a foreign friend has ever given himself. Is that not so, Jeremy? <laughs> well, thank you, Kaiser. <laughs> that's that's very kind. Uh, it was, in fact, given to me by a Chinese friend. So um, It's a know, terrific name. Thanks. Okay. Today, I have to begin the show with a disclaimer or, or something like that. Uh, as many of you may know, I worked for six years for Baidu as their director of international communications, and today's show will focus very heavily on Baidu. I no longer have any position at Baidu, and to my pained regret, not a single share of Baidu do I own, though I still thought it would be good to get that out there first. Um, we are delighted today to welcome Jesse Hempel, who is a senior writer at Wired magazine and who joins us on Seneca for the first time and hopefully not the last time. 15 years ago, uh, Jesse was reporting in Hong Kong and picked up an interest in the then nascent Chinese tech scene. And in the years since, even as she's built quite an excellent reputation, writing for Fortune and other magazines about technology, about business, about all manner of other things, she has kept a keen interest in the development of tech in China. She has recently come back from China, uh, where she attended Baidu World, the company's annual uh, shindig. Uh, she's also uh, published an excellent piece in Wired, uh, which we featured on China about Baidu's big bet on artificial intelligence. She uh, had enviable access and, of course, has a very good comparative perspective with the tech scene in Silicon Valley and in the U.S. more broadly. So we we're very eager to hear her observations firsthand. Jesse, welcome to Seneca. Thank you for having me, Kaiser and Jeremy. It's great to be here. All right. So, Jesse, Give us a sense of how much you've been paying attention to the tech scene in China. You know, because it seems to me, I, I've been away since 2015. And around the time that I left, uh, mobile wallets, uh, you know, WeChat wallet and Alipay on phones were, they were already a thing, but they weren't some technology that beggars and, you know, small uh, uh, mom and pop <laughs> stores used. Um, you know, uh, Uber type services, ride hailing was already a big thing. But the shared bike phenomenon had yet to get going. And I mean, in the space of two years, uh, uh, everything changed. When I go back, the changes are so amazingly huge. And it's something that it's difficult to get a sense of from this side of the Pacific pond. On the other hand, you know, sometimes if you're in China, you sort of suffer from the, you know, frog in, in boiling water effect, and you perhaps don't really 
get impressed by the rapidity of changes uh, as perhaps you ought to be. Uh, What do you think of this? I mean, how do you look at the tech scene in China uh, when you live in the United States? Uh, well, you know, Jeremy, um, I, you, first of all, you know, you point to the fact that in two years, everything changes. And I actually feel like that every time I go to China, I, <laughs> I go to China once every few years. I drop in, I look around, I try to discern what it feels like and how it compares to the U.S. scene. And then I come back. And every single time, the landscape is completely different. All of the tech tools that I used last time that I thought were so cutting edge are yesterday's news. Um <laughs> And, and, you know, that said, so I, I am, I am not a Chinese expert. I'm a Chinese enthusiast. And I think that understanding something about the Chinese tech scene is integral to being a tech reporter in today's world. Because if you spend as much time as I do in Silicon Valley, you start to believe that the world is best understood, certainly from a tech perspective, through the lens of North America. And it really only takes three days on the ground in China to understand that there's a cohort of people who are thinking very differently about the things that they're creating, moving very quickly towards the future and possibly outpacing us. And we may not notice because we're so busy thinking that they're copying us. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to talk about. I mean, so, as I said, you know, you're a person who has perspective on both the US and China in terms of, of the tech development in each country. It seems to me that the narrative on tech in China has also shifted pretty suddenly uh, during my long, long involvement uh, with tech in China up until, you know, Pretty recently, the conventional wisdom had it that China was strictly imitative. Uh, sure. That they were, you know, there were, maybe there were some business model innovations on the edges, but sure, these were these were, you know, mostly workarounds for some, you know, uh, problem with Chinese infrastructure uh, or some backward aspect of the economy, like you know, low credit card penetration or whatnot. But just a couple of years ago, I mean, in the spring of 2015, now Jeremy and I uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, when the election was hotting up, you had Joe Biden uh, going around giving graduation speeches, uh, and then you had a couple of months later Carly Fiorina when she launched her campaign, going around and making campaign speeches, uh, where the theme that they was shared was that you know China was unable to innovate. Show me something that China has done. They were assuring America. Americans patting us on the back that, you know, because we're free, we're always going to have an edge when it comes to innovation. But now I feel like the narrative has completely shifted. I mean, it's kind of like lurched into the other direction. And now people are like breathlessly praising China's innovative capacity, you know, and and worrying that they're going to eat our lunch when it comes to tech. Uh, It's it's funny that you say that and you reference the spring of 2015, Kaiser, because that was about when I noticed when it felt to me like something shifted around that narrative. And it was around messaging. So I was was chronicling very active the rise of messaging services like Facebook Messenger. And those services were trying to figure out, well, how are people going to use these services and how are people going to make money off them, which Uh. they cared a lot about. And they were looking to China and they were looking to WeChat. And there was this idea that actually something had originated in China that we were going to imitate. And that for me was the head scratcher when I realized, oh, you know, There are ways that people have had to use these tools in China simply by virtue of like how, 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 where the tools were in the process of their development Mm -hmm. that we're actively learning from here. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, That's about the right time frame. Yeah. 2015. Does that sound right to you, Jeremy? 
that 2015? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I would identify this year, 2017, as the year when, um, mostly because of what we're going to talk about next, AI, artificial intelligence. Right. Um, but I think this year was the year when, certainly in the media, the narrative shifted and, uh, and you really don't see the scoffing about Chinese innovation that you still did in 2015. Um, this seems to be the, the time that shift. So speaking of artificial intelligence, there really does seem... Uh, to be a lot happening in AI in China, you know, and I base this uh, partly uh, on your excellent reporting, Jesse. Um, and it seems that perhaps the United States does, in fact, still have a blind spot when it comes to how fast artificial intelligence is developing in China. How did you begin to notice that Chinese tech companies were fast rising powers in AI? Uh, and why did you decide to focus on Baidu? You know, I think that it has long been the, the sense that Chinese companies were very interested in AI, perhaps, but they didn't necessarily have the talent base to compete with North American companies. And that was, you know, that was my understanding, my assumption. And then I, you know, I'd written a bunch about Microsoft, and there was this executive at Microsoft who was like that secret sauce. He was the guy that had internally all of the respect of the engineers. He was the guy that when Satya Nadella was named CEO, Satya kept him very close because he really had buy-in. People believed in what he said. His name was Chilu. And then over the past nine months or so, Chi stepped away from Microsoft three months later, turned up at Baidu. Hmm. And that to me was a moment uh, when I said, well, you know, I, I got to pay attention. Like, why is he doing this? And he was the one who said to me, no, you really need to come and see what's happening here. I've been watching China and thinking about when it would be a good time for me to go back to China. And this is the year. This is the year the story changes. This is the year that AI is going to make a substantial impact on the Chinese economy. And I want to be there. It's the story of our time. I got to be in the middle of it. Um, and so I thought, well, if Chi thinks that, I have to get to Baidu quickly. Right, right, right. Um, so I mean, tell us a little bit more about Chi. I mean, I, yeah. I interviewed him too back in the day. I mean, it's pretty funny because I wrote a big article when I was writing for Red Herring about Baidu. And uh, I talked to him at the time and he sort of poo-pooed the idea that, that, that Baidu had anything sort of special about its ability to parse uh, language. I look, look, I spoke to him on the phone. I remember it quite clearly. He was really dismissive <laughs> of a lot of the claims that might be. Uh, maybe, hopefully, that won't get back to, to Robin. But What year was that? That was 04 or 05. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I think it was 05. I mean, you mentioned Red Herring Magazine, Kaiser. That's sort of a, a flag yeah, that of dates distant it, that dates irrelevancy. Yourself so here. I don't think Robin would care. <laughs> a badge of irrelevancy. Once upon a time, it was a big, thick mag and well-respected magazine. But then, yeah, it was pathetic yeah. by the time I got there. I, in fact, edited a Chinese ripoff of it called Red Egg for a while. I you did. You yes, <laughs> See, this is this is right there. I mean, it's it's the whole narrative in there. You, you could the, the Chinese couldn't even you know come up with your own clever names. But <laughs> anyway, um, let's talk about Xi's background. Uh, Lu Qi is, is his Chinese name, but he's one of those confusing people who who reverses the usual order of Chinese and English names. Uh, anyway. He was a real legend. I mean, as you, as you say, how was Robin able to talk him into joining Baidu? Well, you know, there are the real answers to that question. And then there are answers that business executives give to journalists. So, um, you know, the, the answer to that is twofold. It's about Baidu. It's also about Microsoft. In an earlier iteration of Chi's life, he was actually Satya Nadella's boss. Oh, wow. Um, and he may or may not have been passed over for the job of CEO at Microsoft. I don't know. But he certainly had 
been there a long time. He really stayed through Satya's sort of emergence as a strong CEO and a CEO who could carry Microsoft into its next um, the next window of its life. And then he had this awful bike injury. And he really did have an awful bike injury that um, meant that he had to have a couple of surgeries and he just he's that was when he left Microsoft. So that that was the Microsoft piece of it. And then the Baidu piece of it, he had been friends with Robin since uh, like the late 90s. Right. They had met each other and, um, you know, in the, in the Valley in, I think, 1997. And they'd often met and they kept in, in close touch around sort of issues of uh, like how Microsoft was thinking about tech. And I think Robin saw his opportunity and just made a like a hard plea to Chi to come and be part of the AI story at Baidu. Now here, I think, and, and Kaiser, I'd be so interested in your perspective on this. I, you have to also understand what she was walking into it, in walking into Baidu in January of 2017. It, from my perspective as a business journalist, was a company in trouble. Yeah. Um, and that trouble had started close to a decade ago, I think, really, when you really unpack it. When, um, you know, Baidu, again, you are much more an expert at this than I am. But, you know, Baidu really missed a shift in technology. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that, you know, the, the shift from search to mobile. And it never really caught up. And it it tried to spend its way into a, an alternative strategy in e-commerce. And then that failed. It restructured several times. And by the time she arrived in January, it was a company with incredible tech chops, um, but no organizational principle or drive that would help it to move towards a future where it could innovate itself out of the paperback it had landed in. That's fair. So, I Jesse, fair. I mean, what, what yeah. is it about Baidu? Because, uh, you know, I mean, you, you talked about its, its, its uh, apparent, uh, you know, it's been in the doldrums for a decade. I mean, both by market capitalization and by reputation. Really only five years. It's, it's five been, years, not, not five a decade. Years, yeah. Five yeah, years. Five okay, years. but it's been, it's been trailing. I mean, both yeah. its brand and its market capitalization, are, you know, fairly distant thirds to Tencent and Alibaba. And yet the company does manage to attract, you know, some amazing talent. You've been talking about Chilu. Uh, we previously did uh, a podcast with uh, a former colleague of Kaiser's, Andrew Ng. Uh, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, his departure from Baidu early this year surprised a lot of people. But he, they attracted him and he stayed for a long time. So I guess there are two questions. What is it about Baidu that has allowed it to attract people of this caliber, despite its uh, apparent uh, aimlessness business-wise. And secondly, right. you know, what about Andrew Ng's departure? You know, what are the size of the shoes that he left to fill? Um, sure. I'm going to take those in reverse. So okay. first of all, I'm going to address An Andrew's departure. Andrew is one of less than 10 people in the world who have uh, their they have super skills. They have almost magical powers when it comes to really being able to advance the field of AI. And for those people, the sky's the limit. They have every opportunity in the world. And if a company can succeed in keeping somebody like that in the fold for three years, that's reason to celebrate. And so it's really, it's really easy to look back at the three years Andrew spent at Baidu and think, well, why didn't he stay? I mean, if, if Baidu really had an AI story, he would stay. Um, but, from my perspective, as I look at his peers and I see that they often won't sign on to work at a company at all, or they'll consult at a company for a few months and then move on to the next big problem. Andrew 
worked very hard to set up the uh, the AI R&D infrastructure at Baidu. He worked through some really gnarly problems at Baidu. He sort of set it on its course, at least vis-a-vis the AI piece. And then I suspect that he was a little bit bored. The operations, My operations, work is done here. I shall move on. <laughs> well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, there are a lot of startups out in the world just calling his name. You know, the operational piece is not as interesting to him. So, so I wasn't terribly worried when I saw that he left Baidu. Now, I understand that the stock market was. I, I, I remember that the stock took a hit pretty sure. much immediately upon the announcement of his departure, but it came back. So then to, to answer your second question, Jeremy, well, okay, what is it about Baidu? I think that Baidu is truly a deep tech company, that it has a set of deep tech assets and that it prizes that. And so if that is your core strength, that will be recognized there and you will be able to do your most interesting work there. And that is appealing to people. Um, that that said, I mean, you, the you know, if Kaiser was yeah, still working ahead. at Baidu, I would have said that he'd paid you to say that. But um, <laughs> uh, since he's uh, made it clear he stands not to gain, I'll I'll take you at your word. Yeah, to make it even more clear, let me well, just look, sort of suggest that that's actually not all a good thing, though, right? I mean, yeah. I think it, it's a handicap too for Baidu, isn't it? For you know, being such a, a deeply geeky company that, I mean, what it maybe has in 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 tech prowess it maybe lacks in operational capability or in marketing. uh, I think you can take out the maybe. I think that that has proven to to be so. But I also think it's really easy. Can I ask why that is? I mean, based on the leaders. (laughs) uh, You know, if I think of Pony Ma, I mean, a more uncharismatic leader one could not hope for. I mean, he doesn't look like somebody who would lead a team that has the ability to sort of make a psychological connection with its users. Um, I mean, what's the difference? Why is Tencent so good at that and, and, and Baidu isn't? Uh, goodness, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if it translates from my perspective so directly to the, the charisma of the leader necessarily. Um, you know, yeah, I, that's a kind of a cheap comparison, I suppose. But um, I, I'm just so curious. I mean, given this prowess and Baidu's early, uh, you know, it was... Uh, you know, the fir- one of the first generation leaders of China's tech scene. Um, it does seem strange that it, you know, this this connection is missing. Well, I'll tell you. So I I think about Baidu, and I actually think about Microsoft here in the United States. And there were several years during which we had stopped talking about Microsoft. We had backburnered it when we talked about the big technology companies. We talked about the big four. And now today in the United States, you'd never talk about the big four. You'd always talk about the big five. Right. Right. And so I think we need to be cognizant, at least, of how quickly a narrative can change on a company. It's, I mean, I don't know how many times I've, I've used the Microsoft Baidu comparison to people. I mean, it's it's very apt. People, you know, have wanted to suggest to saddle Baidu with Yahoo, but no, it's not the Yahoo. It's it's really, it's, it's similar in, in many ways to, to Microsoft. Yeah, that's right. Um, in large part, because let's face it, Yahoo's value for a very long time was just wrapped up actually in its uh, investment in Alibaba. Right, right. Um, uh, and, and I also think that 2017 is a pretty crucial year for Baidu, much more so than maybe even we realize. Um, yeah. because really, truly, Baidu's issues date back to it having missed this big shift in technology. Very late out the gate. And I'm curious, do they admit that now? And uh, when you talk to yeah, them? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, so I, I had an hour and 15 minutes with Robin and he was, he was very forthcoming, and and I asked him directly about that, and he he spoke directly to it. You know, we missed this, uh, and um, and, and this specifically being mobile, Jesse. 
Yeah, mobile. Yeah, okay. mobile. And so, and so, what that means directly, uh, it means two things. So it means uh, that. Baidu understands that its opportunity to get back in the game and specifically back on top is linked to whether or not it can see, succeed in AI, which it sees as the next big turning point in technology. And what it means to succeed in AI, I think, is twofold. And Baidu has one of the pieces that it needs to succeed, and it's missing one of the pieces that it needs to succeed. Mm, and what are these two pieces? Um, I'm just I'm way oversimplifying it here, okay, right? That's fine. But you need to understand AI. And in and in this, I think Baidu truly is ahead. You need to understand what you're trying to build and where you're going and how you build it and have a vision for what it's going to look like. And then you need data. Data is the raw fuel that makes AI work. It is why China is so well positioned vis-a-vis North America. And in that realm, Baidu is definitely not the leader. I mean, if if uh, if you look at the data that these companies, uh, the the big three bat are collecting in China, I would rather be in Tencent space or Alibaba's place any day. Yeah, that's very that's I think a fair observation. Uh, and it's funny you use that rocket fuel or that the fuel uh, analogy. That's something yeah. that Andrew used to use all the time. You have the rockets and the rocket fuel. Yeah, I mean yeah. I don't think that 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 they have the highest octane rocket fuel to the the data, right? Uh, But the rockets are top notch. Uh, These GPU clusters that Baidu has built are really good. The the data scientists that they have, the the rocket scientists are great. But yeah, the fuel is is lacking. Uh, So let's let's talk about what that that fuel is. So it's search data, it's extensive map data. That's right. But it's not the social graph that, that Tencent has, and it's not the payment data that they have. Right. And it's not Alibaba's consumer data, this consumer behavior right. data, the actual purchases that people make, their, their you know, shopping habits. And I got to think that's more valuable. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you, Kaiser. And I think that, therefore, that what Baidu is doing with Apollo is really the bet the company move. So you know what Apollo is? So no, but I explain don't. it for a little, yeah. So Apollo is basically, I, I look at it again, I, I, with apologies for the fact that I see everything through my North American, what does it look like here lens? It to me looks like the Android strategy, um, deployed in, in China at Baidu, hmm. which is if you are the second mover, if you're late to the game as Google was with the iPhone, then you create an open platform that encourages anybody who wants to compete with Apple to throw down with you, share their data with you, and you very quickly collect a lot of data. So um, Baidu is trying to do this with, with its self-driving strategy. So it has created basically an open platform of tools for any car manufacturers and, and by extension technology companies interested in, in auto who want to be using self-driving tools but cannot create that technology internally to plug into Baidu's platform. Baidu gets the data, which it can use in the future to monetize in all kinds of ways that you can't even imagine yet, um, and in the in the present to train its algorithms. And the Baidu's partners, of course, get the you know top of the line uh, self-driving tech tools that they wouldn't be able to get unless they were, say partnered with Google here in the United States. They really sort of learned this from an internal lesson. They had platformed under Andrew, they had yeah. platformized deep learning uh, and made it available basically to everyone across all of these different departments. And, and the results were pretty amazing. They had people in um, internet data centers who were using it to predict crashes of hard drives and then save downtime. You had, you know, people in the securities, you know, using it to identify uh you know, viruses in the wild that hadn't been uh, been been tagged yet. They hadn't been, yeah. you know, actually ca- categorized yet. But it was, yeah, it's, it's a 
It's a, it's a good strategy. Uh, maybe we ought to talk a little bit about what deep learning is. I mean, this superpower that you talked about that, you know, is in possession of just a, f- a handful of people, uh, who can command astronomical <laughs> salaries now and then huge, you know, options deals. But, uh, what is deep learning and, I mean, in, in layperson's terms and what can it do? I mean, the, the opportunity with deep learning, uh, which is, yeah, it's a little bit of a, a difficult term because it doesn't tell you much about what it is. But mm-hmm. what you're really talking about is algorithms that can program themselves. Up until now, you've had to teach a computer anything that you want the computer to do. But the opportunity in deep learning is that you program initially your information into the computer and then the computer takes it and evolves it and learns on its own, on its own, and learns at a much faster pace, and um, can optimize in amazing ways. The opportunity is huge. It's also hugely concerning because, uh, you know, from the outset, um, we as fallible human beings are inputting what we think is the most inf- important information for these machines to have, and then we don't necessarily like a black box. We don't necessarily always understand how they learn what they learn. Right. That's kind of scary. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I mean, so what are some of the applications that we've seen already out there um, that, that have used deep learning? I mean, so many applications, but my, the most interesting to me right now are the natural language applications. I'll give you, and, and I should say, like, the thing is, this stuff is in your life everywhere right now. Like, yeah. you're touching it. You don't even, you and I are probably touching it right now. And I'll give you an example. I'm a journalist. A big part of my job is to interview people, take the recordings, listen to the recordings, transcribe the recordings, and then do whatever I do with them. Well, now there's a free piece of software that was released this summer called Mm Rev.com that takes that recording and uses machine learning to transcribe it within 10 to 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. So something that used to take me three and a half hours can now be done within 10 to 15 seconds. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean it's amazing, and how how it's not just that they already have this this the wherewithal to do this. I mean, for yeah. them, for the machines to have taught themselves to understand spoken language, that was an amazing thing. I I got a front row seat to that at Baidu. Did you? It was so interesting. They had this thing called Deep Mandarin, and what they did was so you know all our listeners are familiar with you know the orthography of of, of Chinese, right? Uh, you know, it's these written characters. Of course, there you could like the old system. What it would do is they use these acoustic models, and they would look at you know they would hear a sound and then break it into its component parts, and then represented in pinyin uh-huh. and then uh, use sort of the same technology that you would use in predictive type. I mean, so like you, you, you type one character in pinyin, Z-H-E-N, and then, and then as soon as you type the X for the next word, it's, it knows that you're going to type zhenxiang, you know, truth or something like that. It would use that. It would use context that use predictive. But this system, all they did was inputted a ton of sound right. and accompanying text. So anytime they had transcribed, obviously uh, the subtitles of, of TV shows would be perfect for this because you have a variety of voices speaking in very natural contexts with with uh, text corresponding to it. That's all they did. And it didn't have any inter- intermediary stages. It just inputted in sound and outputted in, in Chinese characters. It was like wow. magic. It was so crazy for me to see. I, I couldn't get my head around it for the longest time. But this is the superpower that you're talking. This is what it feels like to be inside any of the R&D centers at any of the big five here yeah. in the U.S. right yeah. now. And yeah. in Baidu, too. It's like 
magic. Yeah, yeah, it's Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke. No, Clark's I want to stop this uh, this uh, kind of tech. Uh, I, I don't know if "circle jerk" is an acceptable word on this podcast. <laughs> no, it's uh, not. Whatever you guys are doing right that. now, and and talk about the fears about AI. Um, <laughs> You know, in the in the United States and the Western world generally, you know, we're scared of the robots taking over. Uh, you know, Skynet, the Terminator is a, a sort of basic cultural reference point. I don't think it's the same in China. So aside from the advantages of huge data sets that the Internet companies and, of course, the government have, the other possible advantage China has in artificial intelligence is you don't seem to have prominent people like Elon Musk, the equivalent in China, warning of the dangers of intelligent robots. Is that the case, Jesse? Um, that is 100% the case. Um, and that is the, one of the biggest reasons why the Chinese market is so interesting to me, because I think it will, uh, AI will, will roll out faster there as a result. In fact, you, you have the opposite of that. You have the Chinese government mandating the fact that companies move as quickly as they can to adopt AI so that China becomes the AI leader. Um, Kaiser's giving me a look. No, no, no. I'm so suggesting that's got to raise some eyebrows in Washington, right? I mean, and, and I, I, for sure. Yeah. So are they, are they aware of that? I mean, of how alarming that's got to be? I mean, companies like Baidu, yeah, they're private companies, but that only insulates you to a certain point. Well, I'll tell you. So Chi, uh, when I, when I interviewed Chi and spent time with Chi, he talked about ethics and about concerns over ethics and about that boiling down in China to people feeling like they have ownership over their data. And that kind of felt like the American read on how we talk about AI here. Um, and so I asked Robin about it. I spent a good amount of time in my conversation with Robin asking him about it. And he was pretty clearly um, of the opinion that uh, the ethics conversation that we embrace here in North America doesn't apply in China, that people are not talking about it the same way, and that he personally does not think it's a concern. And he used the comparison of uh, money on the internet and how when we first were asked to put our credit cards onto the internet in the early aughts, that just seemed like an insane idea. And I remember <laughs> trying to convince my parents to do it. It seemed like an insane idea. But we quickly learned that the uh, what we got in return was pretty awesome and that for the most part, our safety could be counted on and we were willing to do it. And that change took, I don't know, I'm conservatively five years, um, probably a much shorter period of time in China because it happened later with mobile payments. And, and he said that AI would be like that. I'll tell you, I entirely disagree with that. I think AI is such is a much larger shift that it shifts every system, not so just fraught, one yeah. system. But nevertheless, that that was that was his bottom line. On yeah, it. he's super cavalier about that. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, there are there's at least one kind of public technology intellectual who isn't quite as cavalier. That's Kai Fu Lee. You talked to him for this piece too, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I talked to Kai Fu Lee, and and I love talking to Kai Fu Lee. Yeah, I just, we've had him on the show. He's great. He's we got love such yeah. a great perspective. I mean, he really does, and he is just among the smartest people that I've spoken to about this globally. But he was a little bit of a fatalist about the whole thing. I mean, he was like, yeah, this is no good for us. This is going to be hard. People are going to lose jobs. It's This change is going to be you know, hard on people, but it's coming and therefore I'm going to invest in it. Uh, well, uh, which was at least honest. Famous Chinese pragmatism. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> Ka- 
um, Jesse, could we talk a little bit yeah. more about Robin Lee? Um, you know, he's a very yeah. interesting character who, I, over the years, I've got a little better sense of him because of, you know, knowing Kaiser and, and hearing about working with him. But he's still an intriguingly remote individual, I would say. Um, you said that you found him to be perhaps surprisingly somebody with a well-articulated vision for what Baidu will be and what AI uh, will be in the coming years. Can you paraphrase what that vision is? I mean, I think that he understands that AI is going to reshape the economy and that he sees the opportunity for Baidu in particular and self-driving cars to be a part of that. In fact, to be the to be the engine for that change. I I love the way, Jeremy, that you describe Robin because I, I, I assume that you have much more context over time for him than I do. Um, but that was exactly how I noticed him to behave. He is he's a very reserved guy. He's a technical founder. It seems like he's an introvert. Like it took some energy for him to sit and speak with me for an hour and, and change. Um, but he was also more thoughtful. I mean, I, I, I spend a lot of time with the founders of big tech companies. And there are some like, say, Mark Zuckerberg, who are um, less self-reflective than one might think. Sort or of hope. WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. Um, Why am I not surprised? <laughs> um, and uh, Robin was sort of the opposite of that. He was, he was sort of surprisingly reflective in my conversation with him. And, and what I hear about him and what I suspect is true is that he keeps a small circle. And so sometimes communication is hard with him. Um, and that could explain why, at least when she arrived, the company was full of a lot of people doing a lot of different things who maybe didn't always understand what other people were doing along the same lines in the company. Yeah, he's he's a fascinating guy. I, I actually uh, I think a lot of people mistake his shyness for arrogance and that uh, yeah. coupled with the way he appears. I mean, he's uh, just you we were talking the other day. He's it's weird how he he's so unable to age or i mean it's yeah something's going on there yeah let's be honest because like he's like younger and younger that guy that guy looks younger than me i don't really i don't understand how it is possible yeah well so that's what's actually going on with the ai it's uh they're turning into an android a robot jeremy i did wonder if he was trying some of those like weird (laughs) anti-aging pills that billionaires have access to here in the u.s from time to time (laughs) Yeah, he, he could definitely af- af- afford that. Yeah. Uh, let's get back to this th- this question of ethics. Uh, what about what do you think? I mean, is this conversation that we're we're constantly having in North America is it is it impeding us? Is it helping us in any way? Is it making a difference? Is it is is this something that we're wasting our time with? I mean, Andrew used to be very dismissive of it. He would say, "Look." You know, fretting over armies of killer robots right now is like worrying now about overpopulation on Mars. And we're not even there. We're not remotely close to landing on Mars yet. And we, we shouldn't be worried about, you know, polluting the skies or overpopulating the place. I mean, to be really pragmatic about it, I think that the conversation about ethics makes those of us who are propelling this technology forward feel better. And... um <laughs> You know, there's some value in that, but you have to be real about what that is. And any conversation we're having about ethics right now is so uh, backward looking and so grounded, not in what we can understand about the future, because let's be honest, we can understand a lot about the future, but what we fear about the past. And so I, you know, I don't, I don't 
really know if that conversation is helping us necessarily in North America. I suspect that the best way that we can help ourselves in North America is to level the playing field when it comes to who can contribute to the evolution of the technology. And the biggest challenge that I see AI is having as is really coming from like one small subset of people. And that is, you know, that's those are the people who have been educated over time and who have had their interests sort of uh, positioned over time to be the leaders in this field. Um, but if we if we really want to try to make sure that this technology, as it evolves, at least serves all humans, then we need to balance the inputs going into it. And the best way to do that is to make sure that we have a balanced group of people participating in in the creation of the technology. Uh, Jesse, to stay on ethics, but a, a different question. I mean, yeah. um, in China, we also have the ethical issue of an authoritarian government that is essentially building Skynet. And, oh, that. Uh, partic- I mean, okay, we have the NSA here in the United States, and, 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 and we don't even know what they're doing. But we know right. in China, I mean, just in the last two weeks, there mm-hmm. was a, rep- a reporter from the BBC who was shown the facial recognition and tracking system in, I think it was in, in Guizhou, somewhere in Guiyang, uh, you you know, and the police were able to use surveillance cameras to track him down, you know, in under 10 minutes. Uh, there was another interesting story by Associated Press, I think, yesterday about the extraordinary um, surveillance measures that are being put into place in Xinjiang to uh, 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 track people wherever they go, uh, their cars, themselves, facial recognition. So a Chinese tech company is going to get involved in this in some way, because if you're in China and the government wants your data or something, you've got to give it. Is this an ethical question that that is bothering anybody in, in China? Jesse, we were chatting the other day. Didn't you tell me about a couple of startup companies that you talked to that were like specifically doing facial recognition technology for the government for security? Yeah, I mean, I won't, I won't mention the name of this particular <laughs> okay. startup that I went into, but it had like exploded over the past 18 months. It was a, a facial recognition technology startup and its biggest customer. The reason for the explosion was the government. And this was portrayed to me as great news. They had a great customer source. And this technology was amazing. And of course, they, you know, used my picture to show me how amazing it was. And it just terrified me. And, um, you know, Jeremy, you are someone who has lived in China long enough that maybe you have honest answers to the questions of how people really think about this. I, I don't pretend to. They didn't, they didn't seem concerned. In fact, they seemed exuberant about that to me. But why would they seem anything else? You know, I mean, the speaking of <laughs> sort of attitudes about technology and future, I mean, this is, this is an issue that I keep coming back to. And it's an idea that we some years ago had a conversation with a woman, a philosopher who's at NYU in Shanghai. Uh, her name is Anna Greenspan and she wrote a book called Shanghai Future. And she opened her book talking about futurity and like American ideas about the future and Chinese ideas about the future and how the Americans nowadays we talk about progress with little scare quotes around it. We don't, you know, we, we're kind of dismissive or just sort of sneering at like Futurama. Futurama is now sort of this word for this kind of cheesy future of flying cars and spires. And, and, and we're ironic about it. And, and, and in China that, you know, me working at Baidu, I felt like people were really earnest about their belief in technology being able to power an improved future. And I feel like that's got to be kind of a force of buoyancy in the Chinese tech world that that people maybe aren't appreciative of enough. That's interesting. So what you're saying, Kaiser, is that you feel like people earnestly believe that technology is going to make their living situation 
better and that, and that has time. been their experience to date right and that has been their experience yeah. whereas here in the US i mean i guess you also have to think about how much life has probably changed for people living in china right. in the last 20 years if you look at our sci-fi now it's all dystopian futures uh whereas you know sci-fi chinese sci-fi is weird because there are actually there's this huge thread of optimism in a lot of it uh, I mean, we're, you know, there's <laughs> one world. It's, it's it's weird. It's it's like through the mirror. Yeah, no, it it is it is totally true. We are entirely dystopian here in the U.S. when we think about what these future technologies are going to bring, and and the only thing we know for sure, right, is that they never bring what we think that they're going to bring. That's true. Which I yeah. suppose is good news when it comes to like our current like genre of sci-fi because it's all bad. Black Mirror and stuff. Yeah. Um, but it is also true that. Uh, at least in the coasts. And I think in the US, it's really easy for those of us who live in New York and San Francisco to be like, let me tell you about how people in the US think when, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the gap is so large right now. It's never been November as last year. Yeah. Um, uh, well, you're in North Carolina now, and Jeremy, you're in Nashville. I, you know, I, I, my sense is that if you live in the middle of the country, you also think that tech is making your life better. Huh. And if you live in the coasts right now, where, um, the industry has taken hold and or cynicism is more fashionable. Cynicism is much more fashionable. You also probably can't afford the house that you live in. And there's a sense that the tech industry is like, you know, up, 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 but it is bringing flying robots. Um, you're, you're much more likely to see the future as black mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But, um, Jesse, that's not the case inside the Silicon Valley tech companies themselves, which have from the very beginning been steeped in the sort of utopian, um, thinking, uh, about technology that the internet was going to, you know, liberate the uh, human potential across the world, uh, that it was going to usher in, you know, some kind of new, digital age of Aquarius. Um, so, I mean, I don't think that nightmare scenario is, is what you hear in the streets of Mountain View and Palo Alto, is it? I mean, can you, can you talk about the differences between that Silicon Valley utopianism and what I believe may be a more practical and possibly, um, you know, business-like attitude to uh, what they're doing in Zhongguansun? There's always a relief to like looking at technology in China because you would go and you would visit the startups and you'd be like, what are you making? And they'd be like, I'm making XYZ. I'm going to get rich. Right. right? Exactly. I'm honest and, about that. And right? you go to Silicon Valley and it's like the, the, the money is sort of like a, a symptom of the success, right? It is definitely not the aim because it would absolutely be, you know, it would be improper to suggest that what you are trying to do is buy a Tesla when really what you are trying to do is change the world by creating social <laughs> network like Facebook. Um, mm. But then, Jeremy, we're also in this moment where that, like all of a sudden, that that bubble popped in 2017 and there is a huge identity crisis going on in Silicon Valley and nobody will talk about it. Everybody's talk, they're, ta they're talking about it with themselves. They're either too tired to talk about it because they're working 20 hours a day as a middle manager at Google. Um, and they're too tired to do anything but that that promise that they held on to, which is that working at Google was somehow better than working at any other Fortune 500 company because it was it, part of the social mission. Well, that doesn't hold anymore. Or more problematically, they are talking about it in Silicon Valley among themselves. And it's it's nasty. And I'll give you an example. There's this um, investor named Chamath Palyapatiya, who was an early executive at Facebook. And um, I knew him back in, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010 at Facebook. And he was super gung-ho Facebook. And he has 
he's since left the company and he started a venture fund and he's a big character in Silicon Valley. And he's also very close and very close friends with the executives who run Facebook. And over the weekend, he gave a talk at Stanford, actually at the end of last week, he gave a talk at Stanford in which he basically said, you know, social media is bad for you. Yeah, I, I saw that. Identity list. crisis. Well, but did you see Kaiser? First of all, Facebook put out a statement essentially saying he hasn't worked here in a while. <laughs> We're trying really hard. But then he rescinded his statement on oh, Friday. No. Uh, and he did. I, and I, I, yeah, he did. He, he publicly rescinded his statement. Um, and that to wow, me that's is, quite a turnaround because he didn't just question. He said, Facebook and social media are shit and I don't use that shit and I don't let my kids use that shit. <laughs> that's what he said. Wow. So that's right, quite Jeremy. A, but what he down. meant was, what he meant was, uh, uh, I got really rich off Facebook, so I'm not going to talk about them. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> God, I'm wor- worrying now if I if I'm going to have to make a rescind <laughs> some of the things I've just said on this one. <laughs> um, no, uh, no yeah. let, me, let me just be clear that I really no, that's just it. <laughs> That's so funny, but you know, but you're not having, you're not hearing that conversation happening in China at all. I mean, there there are people who worry that their kids are spending too much time on their screens, and then they go out to the restaurant and they all spend time on their screens. It's, but I, I just don't, I don't feel like it's, it's uh, become uh, such a problem. But I mean, at the same time, you know, pro- China, the, the Chinese government is just sort of patting its, themselves on the back and saying, hey, you know, after watching Google and Facebook and. And, and, and Twitter get called on the carpet in front of Congress over what happened in the election. And how did you allow all these, you know, Russian bots to infest Twitter? How did you allow all these Russian accounts to be set up and buy advertising on Facebook? Uh, you know, they're, China, China's going, told you so. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly oh, right. Uh, uh. Well, Jesse, what a pleasure it has been talking to you. Uh, and before I let you go and get on with your day, let's do some recommendations. Um, before that, let me remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Download our app or subscribe to the daily newsletter and follow us on Twitter and Facebook where our handle is SubChina News. And if you like the Seneca Podcast, please do go and leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store where it really helps people discover the podcast. So now, on recommendations, uh, Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? What do you have? for us um okay newsletter from uh a a few uh, ethnographers and um, social scientist types called magpie digest it's an email newsletter that covers uh internet culture and memes and uh weird stuff going on uh in magpie digest huh that's yeah wow in is it in english or in chinese oh in english Oh, wow. Um, awesome. You know, a former guest on our show is is on it, uh, Trisha Wang. Oh, yeah, um, Trisha. She's amazing, yeah. Yeah, uh, she's oh, one wow. of the, the people behind it. And I think it's uh, Christina Xu. Uh, oh, her too, my I God. Know, called Fiona, Fiona Chan. Three, three of them. Uh, a weekly newsletter. They call it Unpacking Trending Conversations in China. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. I'm going to get right on that. How have you not told me about it earlier? Well, it was in our daily newsletter, but... Um, you know, okay. if you're not I, I reading said, it, uh, I mean, I just don't get to it every it, day. You might have missed yeah. it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's a, that's an excellent recommendation. Jesse, you're up next. Recommendation? Okay. Well, this is not China specific, but I think that Never, this book they is- They usually aren't. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best book that I have read um, about understanding how the shift in technology is impacting the shift in organizations. Um, and it's called uh, Who Can You Trust? It is by the- British consultant Rachel Botsman. 
And as a bonus, it will also tell you something about how to understand Bitcoin. Oh, that's something I've always wanted to understand better because it's never been adequately explained to me. Who can you trust? Who can you trust? Okay, well, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. Uh, I am going to re-recommend something that I recommended some time ago, but in a different format. Uh, this time, the audiobook, the audiobook version of one of my very, very favorite books uh, is now out. It's just fabulous. The book is called The Long Ships, and it's by Franz Gunnar Bengtsson. Uh, it was written in two parts in 1941 and 1945. He's like a, a, a household name in Sweden, apparently. Uh, but it follows the adventures of this late 10th century Viking named Orm and his the, the adventures are amazing uh, it's written with this kind of sly humor this it's delightful uh, and Orm himself is just a really funny character he's a hypochondriac he has this very kind of practical instrumental view of religion he's really upfront about being completely greedy for treasure I mean it's it's hysterical uh, but he's he's a lovable character nonetheless and I, I, I looked it up on Wikipedia the other day and it looks like Stellan Skarsgård uh, who is the the the, the elder Skarsgård of that brood of you know handsome young studs uh, who are all over television these days? Uh, he, they're all going to play Orm at different stages of his life in in a forthcoming TV and and film adaptation. But in the meantime, this winter I can think of nothing uh, more pleasurable than reading or listening to the book in front of a roaring fire, preferably on a bearskin rug with a stout flagon of ale. Uh, Jesse, thank you once again. Uh, it was such a delight. You're so so uh, so so smart on this stuff. Um, we look forward to having you on again. Thank you, guys. I love listening to you. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks, man, Jesse. great to see you here in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of the time. <laughs> yeah, some of the time. You're, you're well, too we, snobby we, to we, come down here to Brooklyn, but. Uh... <laughs> oh no, no, no! I'm just, I knew it was going to be loud, and there's no space at the WeWork down there. To... Anyway, <laughs> I'll see you in just a little bit, Jer. Okay. All right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page, or don't if you think Facebook is evil, at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. And follow us on Twitter, unless you think Twitter is evil, at, at SubChina News. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. Take care.